All right, the book of Jeremiah, chapter, go ahead and turn to 22. The goal is to finish 23 tonight. Now, on the podcast, over the last couple of days, I've covered Jeremiah chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25, chapter 26, chapter 27, chapter 28, and chapter 29. And I covered all of those in like two days, maybe in around 24-hour period. So, I've covered all of that on the podcast. Here, we're still going to, we'll have to start skipping some. Obviously, everyone can look at the date. It's August the 23rd, and we're supposed to be done by the end of August. So, obviously... Um, I'm going to keep doing things on the podcast to try to make sure all the chapters are covered and then see what I can do here to, you know, you're always like, well, it's always easy to go, man, we should probably just skip that chapter. And then as soon as you skip it, you realize when you get two or three chapters later that, well, maybe we shouldn't have skipped that chapter because that kind of really establishes very important principles. So we'll see what we can do and do the best we can to try to get this as close to as as completion as possible. But the main thing is to to make sure we learn something. So even though we're supposed to be in chapter 23, and this happened even this week, over and over and over, you sometimes have to go backwards before you can go forward. So I need us to go back to Jeremiah chapter 22 because I did not... On Sunday, I did spend the time with it in Sunday school, and I didn't realize, I wasn't super happy with it, so I deleted it. And then I kind of reviewed it briefly in the Sunday morning sermon. Not, I still did not realize the significance of it. And then when I started working this week through chapter 20, 21, 20, all through, through 20 to 29, as I got into 25, 26, some of these chapters, I realized, well, wait a minute, I made the right decision to do that. Uh, And I didn't realize how important the decision was. So when we go to chapter 22, we're going to go through this. Sarah better have her notes because she's the one who's got all the scriptures written down correctly. Because my notes, we changed my notes. um, we, we, We adjusted my notes to fit what we thought was a better outline for the chapter. But in Jeremiah chapter 22, we really have some messages to some kings. And we need to know the names of these kings. We need to know which section of this chapter covers them, because I think in some ways this becomes important moving forward, all right? So let's just remind ourselves of a couple of things. First, you may want to write this name down. Write down the name King Josiah. King Josiah, all right? If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, you'll see why we want to remember his name, right? Because his name is mentioned in chapter 1. Everybody remember? Everybody want to go back and look at it really quick just for just to make sure we're all on the same page. All right, Jeremiah chapter 1, where do you see it? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of... Josiah. So we know the words of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the days of Josiah. Now it's going to mention a bunch of other kings there, does it not? Yes, it mentioned a number of other kings there, but Josiah is the first one I want you to remember. So write down the, 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 the name Josiah and everybody should remember he reigned for how long? 31 years, right? And for the most part, he sought to lead the people back to God, all right? But the last four kings of Judah were all what? Wicked. They were all wicked. And this is very important. Three of them were Josiah's sons. One was his grandson. All right? And that grandson, we should remember. I didn't, it didn't, it didn't ring the bell on Sunday. I wasn't drawing the correlation because he's known by so many names, but... We spent a whole lot of time looking at that particular one in a previous study, all right? And we'll, we'll mention that just briefly, all right? So, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 22, you'll notice starting in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word. Now, this word spoken to this king goes from verse 1, and it goes all the way down to verse 10, because look what happens in verse 11. For thus saith the Lord, touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. We have another king mentioned in 11. So chapter 22, verses 1 through 9, or 1 through 10, are the words to a specific king. The king is not listed there. 
There's lots of debate on who this king is. The best we can come up with is that it is King Zedekiah. And the reason we came to that conclusion was, does anyone know? remember why? Chapter 21 is all about Zedekiah. So it makes sense that here, and then some of the sins that he's accused of sound like the sins spoken of Zedekiah. Now others say, no, 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 no. These sins sound like this king. But the context, we think it's Zedekiah, all right? We think it's Zedekiah. Now, why is that significant? Well, he was the last king of Judah, right? Everybody remember that? Okay, he reigned for 11 years, and he saw the kingdom and the city destroyed by Babylon. He was blinded, taken to Babylon to die, all right? So this is very important to realize. And, and again, you would kind of think, well, wait a minute. Why would Zedekiah be mentioned in 22, 1 through 10 if you're going to name other kings since Zedekiah is the last king? I do agree it seems a little out of order, but we already have spoken about one of the problems with Jeremiah is it's out of order. So, but whatever the case is, we think that's Zedekiah. Just remember, Zedekiah, he is an evil king. An evil king. In fact, he's going to come into play in a couple of chapters because he refuses to do something that he should have done. And, and, and I think most Christians today would have been on the side of Zedekiah whether they want to admit it or not. But we'll talk about it when we get there. Zedekiah, he reigned again for how long? 11 years. He saw the destruction of the kingdom and the city. He's blinded. Taken to Babylon to die, okay? Everybody got it that? All right, the next king is... Shalom. Everybody see that? Now, Shalom has another name. Everybody know his other name? Jehoahaz, or Jehoahaz, however you would like to say it, Jehoahaz, or Shalom. He succeeded Josiah and reigned for a whopping three months. And Pharaoh Necho deported him to Egypt where he died. All right? Everybody got that? Right, and he is covered in Jeremiah 22, verses 10 through 12. So, do I, or 11 through 12. 11 through 12, thank you, thank you. 11 through 12. Now, some commentaries do put verse 10 as covering him, but it doesn't seem to make any sense to me, all right? So, we're going with 11 through 12. That's why we had to modify some of it. On, so, you may want to put brackets around these individuals, all right? Chapter 22, 1 through 10 is whom? Zedekiah. Chapter 22, 11 through 12 Shalom or Jehoahaz, Jehoah, Jehoahaz, however you would like to say his name. All right? Everybody got that? Who's the next king? Look at verse, uh, is it what, verse, verse 13. Now, he's not mentioned in 13. He's not mentioned until 18. And we see, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim. Now, we believe, actually, he's being spoken of starting in verse 13. And so from verse 13 all the way down to, is it 23? All the way to 23, it's Jehoiakim. He's also called Eliakim. He reigned for 11 years. And he died where? In Jerusalem. Everybody got that? And he was followed by his son, Kaniah, and Kaniah has a couple of names, Jehoiachin and Jeconiah. Now, does everyone remember Jeconiah? Does everyone remember Jeconiah? We spent a long time studying the curse of Jeconiah. It's the curse of Jeconiah that many Jews will use to show this, prove that Jesus is not the Messiah. Does everybody remember those hours and hours and hours we worked on that? We looked up every reference to Jeconiah. Nobody remembers it. Okay, I created an entire series called The Curse of Jeconiah. No, it was just a, like a year ago, maybe not even a year ago, okay? In fact, I'll pull up the dates. I'll pull up the dates. Um, you see, it was, okay, well, yeah, he's got three names. Yeah, hang on. Uh, let me go back through all of him again. One more second. Okay, hang on. Uh, 
The first sermon in the series was preached on 11-8-22. Okay? 11-8-22. So less than a year... So in this church, less than a year ago, okay? Now, all those statistics that say that whatever you preach, no one's going to remember, this is evidence of those studies that tell pastors there's no point in caring because no one's going to remember. But the curse of Jeconiah, it's a super important issue. It's a super important issue. Here's the reason why, all right? Let's go back to, so let, let's go through all this information, all right? Let's go through, and I just, uh, we talked about this. Do I, and, and I just covered this the other night in the podcast as well, but let, let's talk about this quickly. All right. So Jehoiakim is followed by his son Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah, and Kaniah. His reign lasted three months. All right. And he is talked about in chapter 22, 24 to 30. Now, let's just take a few minutes to read it. All right. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence, and I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out and thy mother and bear that bear thee into another country where you were not born and there shall ye die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, earth, earth. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in the days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Well, guess whose uh, genealogy he shows up in? The genealogy of Jesus. which creates a whole lot of problems. That's why we spent hour after hour after hour right here in this church going through every reference mentioning this man. In fact, we covered this very section. All right? And remember, there were all kinds of different theories on how to make it work, and I I try to explain to you the significance of it. Right? This is a serious issue. I don't have time right now. I, I can't have us go all the way back through it. Now, the typical idea is, well, here's the way it works. Matthew's genealogy comes through Joseph. Since Joseph is not the biological father, so then this curse doesn't count. It doesn't affect Jesus. And then the Luke genealogy leaves him out, and that goes through Mary. And so therefore, Mary, so therefore Jesus is not affected by the curse, and so therefore he gets out of it that way. Now, we, we looked at all of those possibilities, and we remember we looked at all of the issues. Is it the same name? Is it a different person? All, we, we went through all the, I don't know, I, y'all are looking at me like, y'all don't remember any of this. We spent literally hours on this. Okay, hours. I mean, okay, we did an entire series on it. So that, I, I don't have time to go back through it. Let's just remember how many kings are mentioned in chapter 22. Four kings. Who are the four kings? The first one, Zedekiah, he reigned how long? 11 years. He dies where? Zedekiah, he's blinded and taken to Babylon, right? Okay, right. Next king, Shalom, also known as? Jehoahaz, or Jehoahaz, right? Okay, right. And he reigned for three months, and the pharaoh, Necho, Okay, sends him and he dies, all right? Next king, Jehoiakim, right? Known as Eliakim. 11 years, dies in Jerusalem. Next, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, Akoniah. Three months. Yeah, he dies in Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and he is cursed. And no one from his seed is to ever rule where? On the throne of David. However, he seems to show up where? 
in the genealogy of Jesus. And I try to explain to you guys at that time, you may not care, but if you actually talk to people and try to convince them about the truth of Christianity, someone may say, well, then obviously Jesus isn't the Messiah. Okay, and you, you're supposed, to, my, it's not your job. Remember, just, I just have to really stress this, you know, it's, it's your responsibility to know the answer. It's not my uh, responsibility to know the answer, right? You're supposed to be able to give an answer, not me. Your job, because it's, it's always weird, like sometimes Christians don't take, this is a major, uh, it's almost an epidemic in the Protestant world. In the Protestant world, people will sit in the pew and go, I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that, right? However, and they'll just basically say that's the pastor's job or a theologian's job, right? But then the minute the pastor or theologian says something that people don't like, (laughs) then all of a sudden it's their job to tell the pastor and the theologian that they are wrong. And so then they're like, so what? Sometimes I don't even understand the way it all is supposed to work, right? It's like, on one hand, well, it's not, I don't, it's, why should I figure that out? You're the pastor. You're the seminary professor. That's your job. And then the minute they say something the people in the pew don't like, even without study, they just immediately say, you're wrong. And it's, it's, it's maddening. But yeah, it, you, it, the, the series is online and you can go back and listen to all of the work that we have done. Now, that brings us to chapter 23. Now, why did I just spend all of that time, 20 minutes, to hurt us from finishing this, because look what happens in chapter 23. Everybody ready? All right, everybody paying attention? 23, we need to pay attention to 23, okay? We have to leave 22 behind. We have to leave the whole problem with uh, Jehoi Chen and Jeconiah. We've got to leave all those problems behind. All right, here we go. Chapter 23, verse 1. It starts with, Woe be unto the... Pastor, stop right here. We have to identify who these pastors are. All right? Now, does all translations use the word pastor? Oh, someone's, some say shepherds. Some say shepherds. Okay, I'm going to look for another translation. Go ahead and look up the Hebrew word there if you would like. Go ahead and look up the Hebrew word. We have to move quickly here. We have to move quickly. Woe unto the shepherds in this translation as well. So I think in most, I think in many English translations, it uses the word shepherds, not the the word pastors. Okay, shepherds. And what does the Hebrew word give us any insight into whom this may be referencing? Well, wherever you want to look up the Hebrew. Yeah, but the Blue Letter Bible app is a good way. Okay. Okay, there's a lot of different things it can mean, right? Okay, there's some, there's some terminology used there that reference a shepherd. You can see that. Also can reference a ruler, right? The word ruler is actually used in that long definition, is it not? To rule. Okay, the word shepherd is, is there. So it can be. So what, if you were reading this without any help, and it says, woe unto the shepherds, how, do you tip, how would you typically interpret that? And you can be honest in whether you're right or whether you're wrong, we will see. Okay, leader of a flock, okay. So uh, who, who would you think these people are then? Okay, I think most would go with religious leaders, right? How many would go with religious leaders? All right, how many think you're right? Okay, pastors that feed my people. So immediately you assume that that is religious leaders, right? That's, what, that's how most people approach this. I'll just give you an example immediately how many approach this. You ready? Here we go. Here's just one note and one Bible. All right, you ready? 
The pastors were not only Zedekiah and the three godless Judean kings mentioned in chapter 22, but all the leaders of Judah, including spiritual and civil leaders. They put both. Others say it is not the religious leaders. The religious will be dealt with later in the chapter. This is dealing with the civil leaders. So some say it's both. Some say it's only the civil. There's probably someone out there who say it's only the spiritual. Meaning that we probably don't, there is probably no agreement on exactly (laughs) who it is. Which, you gotta love that, right? You gotta love that. But let's see exactly what's going on here. In fact, uh, let me look here. All right, here we go. This is from uh, the Explore the Bible Personal Study Guide for the summer of 2023. Jeremiah's message began with the word woe. The prophets often use this word to introduce a threatening declaration of calamity. In this instant, the recipients of Jeremiah's woe speech were the pastors who tended God's people. This pronouncement targeted the political and religious leaders, but wait for it, but primarily the kings. All right? The leaders and kings of Israel were often referred to as shepherds. Do we want to verify this? Y'all ready? Here we go. Let's verify quick. Everybody, someone go to Psalm 78. Look at verses 70 through 71. 78 verses 70 to 71. Psalm 78 verses 70 to 71. Tell me if this proves anything or disproves anything. Uh, Psalm, uh, I can't walk all the way back to you, so I'll read it because my microphone will cut out if I walk all the way back there. So, okay, hang on. All right, is it referring to David? Psalm 78, verse 70. All right, hang on, I got to get there. He chose David, also his servant, and took him for from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and to Israel his inheritance. Okay. Maybe, kind of, maybe. Does the NIV read it in a different way that makes it more explicit? Okay, took him to be the shepherd. Okay. All right. So, so, so maybe that would work. Because clearly David was a king. Go to Isaiah 44, 28. Okay, which verse is that? Uh, verse 72. Okay, 78, 72. All right. David shepherded the people. Okay, so that, I, I think now we're getting a little bit of support for this concept. Go to Isaiah 44, 28. Isaiah 44, 28. What do we have in Isaiah 44, 28? Referring to Cyrus as his shepherd. Cyrus was a civil leader, right? A ruler, all right? So those two, those are two examples. They give us more. I think that proves that there's a high probability then this is not referencing the spiritual. This is referencing the kings. In fact, the very next paragraph says this. Here, Jeremiah was picking up on what he had previously said about Judah's last four kings. You see why I spent 20 minutes to go back over those four kings? All right, whom he called out by name in chapter 21, verse 3 to 22, 30. And if you look, 21 is Zedekiah. We think he continues in 22. And then we have all the other ones, right? Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, right? We have all of the other ones, okay? Uh, In the book of Jeremiah, the Lord uses expressions like my pasture, my people, and my flock more than 40 times to communicate his affection for his people. But that, that is... This very much, I think, continues what's going on. In chapter 21 and 22, he names four kings. And in 23, he says, whoa! Why would he say woe unto them? Because the last four kings were evil. 
right? They were evil. And he says, woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. They were destroying and scattering the sheep. Who are the sheep? Judah, specifically Judah here, but yeah, Israel in general, right? The, 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 The people, right? So I just, you may want to write this down. We have the kings and we have the people, right? Just keep that in mind. Let's continue, right? Because I have to go through this relatively quick, right? Because I want to finish this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors, and we believe that again, referring to the kings, that feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. God is upset with those Civil leaders put there. Now, here's the only problem from a philosophical standpoint and the thing that I will never quite understand. According to the book of Romans, any civil authority was put there by whom? That, that is just, I, I, my brain just can't comprehend that. God puts them there and then it's like, you know good people. Well, you put me here, okay? You're the, he did not, God know what was these leaders were going to do. He could have given them good kings. Could he not have? Like, like it's the whole thing sometimes is, makes no sense to me. All right, but look what he says. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries, whether I have driven them, I will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. Now, when we look at verse three, there's some good news finally, right? Because in chapter 20 and and some of the previous chapters, it's all about how bad these kings are and all the bad things that they will do, all the bad things that they have done and the judgment that's coming upon them, right? 22 ends with a horrible curse against one of those kings, right? And then 23, woe unto them, woe unto them. And then all of a sudden there's a promise here. What's the promise here? Yeah, he's going to gather the people out of all the countries where I've driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Now, what do we? What's the question? We any good Bible student will have to ask about verse three. Did this happen when they came out of Babylonian captivity? Well, this says when they come out of all the countries, not just Babylon. So I don't know, right? We does the north ever come out of Assyrian captivity? Well, we we don't ever you know we don't have any so. So then is this, when is this ultimately fulfilled? We, we don't think, now some will come and say, well, this was fulfilled by those who come into the church. And we think that that's ludicrous and that's ridiculous. So then we think it has to have some future uh, possible manifestation, right? Verse four, I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Uh, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Okay, I don't think that that's ever happened for Israel where they never had to fear anymore and they were never lacking again because what after the Babylonian captivity, what happens? Yeah, it's not long that you have another major problem, correct? You can even read about some of the problems in the intertestament period, right? Where they had conflict, right? The Maccabean revolt, all the different things that happened. Then by the time you open your New Testament, they're under Rome's control, and by 70 AD, they no longer exist. So we think that there has to be some kind of future ramifications to this, right? Now, look at verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Now, who do we believe this verse is referencing? We believe it's referencing Jesus. Now, just, uh, just as a good Bible student, we should attempt to do this. Is Jeremiah 23.5 ever quoted in the New Testament? Is it ever quoted in the New Testament and clearly applied to Jesus? 23.5. Is it ever quoted in the New Testament? Anyone who can find an answer will win $5,000 of imaginary money. Okay. Okay. 
I'm going to read what one commentary here says. Okay. Behold, the days come appears to be a general statement without any specific time reference. Nonetheless, it appears numerous times in the book of Jeremiah to introduce an announcement of hope for the future, coupled with a fourth emphatic pronouncement, saith the Lord. It was the Lord's way of calling the people to pay attention to this important revelation of a hopeful expectation. The message is that the Lord will raise unto David a righteous branch. This speaks of the Messiah, the ideal king who would be a descendant of David and reign eternally. Now, every quote they have here is 2 Samuel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, meaning they look for all the Old Testament prophecies pointing to it. All right? Jeremiah was part of a long tradition of prophets who had the privilege of announcing the coming of the Messiah. They quote Isaiah 9, Micah 5, Amos 9, Hosea 3. The New Testament writers were revealed that these prophecies were realized in Jesus. All right, now I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures in the New Testament, and let's see what we find here. You ready? So we go to Matthew 16, look at verses 15 through 16. Matthew 16, 15 through 16. Matthew 16, 15 through 16. This is Peter's confession, right? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is anointed one, making a reference to Messiah. It's not obviously a direct reference to what? Jeremiah 23, 5, right? Everyone agree? Right? Go to Luke 2, 11. Luke 2, 11. Luke 2.11. We've got to make a lot of progress here, right? Okay. Only thing it says here is he's a savior, but he's born in the city of David. All right, so connecting him to David, all right? Still not, no, still not a lot of what we need here. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Acts 5.42. What did we find in Acts 5.42? Right. So that tells you this. Obviously, the study guide knows that there's no direct quote of Jeremiah 23.5 where? In the New Testament. Now, I hate that because, because you know, then, then people can argue. Now, I think we know what we believe it is referencing Jesus, and I, I guess the only way we would have to put this together, we would have to take the next 30 minutes, what you would have to do is go look at every Old Testament prophecy that uses similar language, then take all of those prophecies, go to the New Testament. It may not give a direct quote of it, but if it all fits together and then does point to Jesus, we do know the New Testament references Jesus as the Christ, right? The Messiah. So we do know that, right? And that he is the one who fulfilled those prophecies. But, okay, oh, what do we have? What do we have? Okay, all right. So that at least shows that Jesus was a fulfillment of those prophet, of the prophets. It doesn't mention specifically Jeremiah 23, 5. I just always love when we say, hey, everyone, this is about Jesus. I love to be able to then turn around and quote a verse from the New Testament that says, this is about Jesus, right? It's easier to do that. I, that you, and you should demand that, right? When someone says, this is about Jesus, you should say, based off... What? So the only way to put this together, we would have to look at every reference in the Old Testament that uses similar language. So let's at least look at the, the language used specifically here. Now, please note, context. Chapter 21, 22 has been about four really, 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 really bad kings, right? Yes? Okay. 23 verses 1 through 4 has been judgment pronounced on these really, 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 really bad kings. Everybody with me? All of a sudden, 23, behold, all of a sudden, that means what? A major shift in tone. The days come. 
Meaning, the days are not yet here, but hey guys, pay attention, pay attention, something is coming. What's coming? Well, and it says, saith the Lord, meaning, hey, this is a message directly from God. Pay attention. Right now, all you can see is some really messed up kings, and you've suffered as a result of these really messed up kings. But behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will raise unto David a righteous branch. From David, from the line of David. Now, of course, you may immediately go, well, wait a minute. Isn't there a curse on, uh, well, there's a curse from, someone can't bring anyone to the line of David. But okay, we, we could get into that. But all right, here we go. I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king. Now, this is clearly contrasting this king with all of the bad kings mentioned in chapter 22, and he shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Now, this is very important. Again, some people believe, well, he's going to reign and he's going to execute judgment in the earth, but it's a spiritual kingdom. It will not be a physical kingdom, right? So this gets into a whole, but if you believe that, well, those other kings were ruling and reigning on earth. This seems to imply that Jesus at some point will rule and reign on earth, which this gets into the whole, I mean, there's, look, there's, the differences in eschatology and, and Christianity is like night and day, right? In his days, now please note, in whose days? This king, this righteous branch, in his day, Judah, shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. I want you to hear that. Who's going to be saved? Judah and Israel. Meaning, once again, that's both the north and the south. And I want to make it, this is so important. There's no way you can make that apply to the church. If that applies to the church, this would mean what to them? Nothing. Why, why? Like, how is this comfort to them? The comfort is, hey, guys, guys, judgment's coming. These kings you've suffered under, but the day is coming that you're going to get a good king. And when that happens, you're going to be, you're going to be saved and you're going to dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he should be called. What is his name? The Lord, our righteousness. This is very important. The Lord, our righteousness. How is it translated in the NIV? The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Does everyone understand the significance of that? They're not going to be saved because of what they do, could do, should do, will do, may do, promise to do. His righteousness. The Lord is our... What If someone says, look... And this is true of Israel, and this is true of you. Hey, prove to me that you're saved by what you do. Oh, you want proof? The Lord is my righteousness. You can't get better proof than that. The Lord is our righteousness. And that same concept is applied not just to Israel. It's applied to us as well. Where is it applied to us? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you've been listening to our series on sanctification, go to 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 1, and you may want to look where it refers to Jesus as our righteousness, our sanctification, our wisdom, our redemption. And that's being given to a church that's pretty, pretty messed up. Does anybody know where it's at? Who can find it first? Who can find it first? Right. But of him, now this is writing, being written to the people of the church of Corinth. What do we know about the people of the church of Corinth? First Corinthians chapter 3 says that they are carnal. They are fleshly. What does he say of them in verse 30? But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who God made unto us wisdom and righteousness and redemption. 
Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my sanctification. Christ is my wisdom. Christ is my redemption. That should just stop all the arguing about the whole issue about lordship or you're, oh, you're an antinomian or you, you just stop all your nonsense. Who is our righteousness? Christ. Because when it comes to my righteousness, no matter how righteous I may think I am, next to God's law, it will always fall short. Because you can look at Israel's history and what should you, what, what should you conclude? They should never be saved. They don't deserve to be saved. But they are not saved because of their righteousness. They are saved because of Christ's righteousness. In fact, if you go back to 1 Corinthians, you'll notice something very important here. This is very important. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 29. Everybody there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. What's one way to ensure that no flesh will glory in his presence? I can tell you one way to make sure no uh, flesh glories in his presence. It has nothing to do with you. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of the God is made unto wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And look, why is he, why are we, why is he made unto us all of those things? Look at verse 31. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You got to glory in the Lord because why? You don't prove you're saved by what you do. You prove that you're saved by what he did. Because if you can prove that you're saved by what you do, who gets the glory? You do. And if you say, no, 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 God is the one who did that through me. Well, then if God doesn't do that through me, then God gets the blame. No, then I get accused of not being saved. The whole thing is ridiculous, and it's a works-based perversion of the gospel. And, we, and this truth goes all the way back to Israel. Can Israel glory in the presence of God? No, because what did Israel do over and over and over and over and over? Failed him. But yet, the Lord is our righteousness. Everybody see that? Verse 7, therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say the Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth, which brought us up, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries, whether I had driven them and they should dwell in their own land. In other words, there's going to come a time that no one's going to remember them coming out of Egypt. They're going to remember them coming out of their ultimate captivity coming back into their land. And guess what? What did you, did you, what did you celebrate today? Do they celebrate coming out of captivity from all of the other countries? Or do they still celebrate coming out of Egypt? Yeah, they still celebrate coming out of Egypt. Meaning this still hasn't even happened even within the Jews. Correct? I mean, do they have their land yet? No. So meaning that that's got to be a future. Now go to verse 9, all right? So that's the kings. Now look at verse 9. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. Who is speaking in 23.9? Who is speaking in 23.9? Jeremiah, right? Okay, does, does everyone agree? Okay, all right. You're scaring me. <laughs> that was a long delay there, okay? All right? Because look, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man. I'm like a man whose, whose wine have overcome because of the Lord. That wouldn't be God speaking, all right? Okay, you're worrying me there, okay? All right? That Jeremiah is speaking. So now, guess what? He, in verses 1 through 8, Jeremiah's focus is on the civil kings, their failures, and then hope that a, king, a better king is going to come along. Right? Now, what does he turn to in verse 9 and following? Well, let's just read it. Let's just read it just to make sure y'all get it. All right, here we go. 23.9. My heart within me is broken because of the... Prophets, everybody see? 
So what's the answer to the question I just asked? He turns his attention to the prophets, right? And because of the prophets, all my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine have overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of swearing, the land mourneth and the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up and their course is evil and their force is not right. As this commentary says, Jeremiah turned his attention to Israel's spiritual leaders, especially the prophets who in their patriotism and endorsement of the status quo told the political leaders and the people what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah is upset with all of this because the religious leaders did what? They followed the political leaders because of their so-called patriotism. Loyalty to country is anathema to loyalty to scripture. And I'm sick of the American church thinking patriotism equals Christianity. Patriotism is anathema to it. Our loyalty is to Christ, not to country. Our loyalty is to the cross, not the flag. That's why there'll never be an American flag in here under any circumstance. And you can say, well, I love your country. Great, but your loyalty better be to Christ. Because whether you like it or not, whatever religious, whatever political party you support, they're not always in accordance. I don't care Democrat, Republican, Independent. I don't care who. Libertarian. They're not in accordance with Scripture. Does everybody understand that? So they were telling the people what? They wanted to hear. I want to read more of the commentary, but let's just read this and try to go. We'll go, we'll read just without trying to spend too much time. We'll read verses 9 to 15. I'll try not to stop. It's hard not to stop, okay? It's hard not to stop. But I've got 40 verses to get through, so I'm, and I'm running out of, I got like 10 minutes, so I, I don't even know if I can pull this off. But you're getting the idea of the chapter, are you not? Okay, now look. So my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. Look, sometimes looking at American Christianity, I feel just like a drunk man who's been overcome with wine. And I I don't know about you. I'm done with it, fed up with it, sick of it, and I don't know what to do with it, especially with the politicizing of American Christianity. For the land is full of adulterers, for because of swearing the land mourneth, the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, and their forces is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. So I want you to make sure we understand this. In this chapter, who do we have? We have the kings. We have the prophets. We have the priest. And we have the people. And all of them are going the wrong way. And you can put the blame on one more over the, the other, but they are all messed up, are they not? Yes, they, they are, okay? All right, uh, look at verse 11. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. Wherefore their ways shall be unto them as slippery ways in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fall therein, for I will bring evil upon them. Even the year of the visitation, saith the Lord, and I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Beal and caused my people Israel to err. Now, we have to ask, this is a very important question here. All right? This is a very important question. Verse 13, this is a major theological question. and, and And you know what sparked this question that I'm about to ask? The Protestant Reformation. Because this is where I get really ticked off. Okay? Here, who's getting the blame for the error of the people? The religious leaders. The religious leaders caused the people to err. Now, in this context, does that make some sense? Yeah. Yes. Do the people have a Bible? No. 
God did not speak to everyone. Even in the even even charismatics would have you think would, they would admit God doesn't even speak to everyone. Even in the Old Testament, when He was speaking to people, He revealed His words to the prophets. So the people had to rely on the religious leaders. But guess what happened? And when a German monk decided to tell the church, no. Something changed. And many people who, who sit in a pew of a Baptist church or a, or, a, or a Christian church, they don't want what comes with it. Because you can no longer blame the church. Because we sit here and we claim that who no longer has the power? The entire Protestant church makes the argument that who does not have the power? The church. Now, if the church doesn't have the power, then who has the responsibility? You do. So if you are confused or in error, stop blaming preachers and blame yourself. And I'm sick of Christians whining that, well, I was confused because this... No, it's on you. Don't blame the preacher because the minute you, you blame the preacher to get out of the responsibility, but then guess what you do the minute you disagree with the preacher? He's wrong. So if I can be wrong whenever you decide that I'm wrong, well, then me being right is there, it has no bearing on you. Because as soon as I say something, people don't agree. They just don't agree. I have literally no power and no authority. The whole structure of authority in the Protestant church is an absolute joke. It's a myth. It's a lie. Pastors have no authority. And I know when I say that, people are going to get mad. And they'll say, no, but I will listen to my pastor until you don't. And the minute you don't, what happens? Either you will work to get the pastor fired, or you will simply leave and go. And if need to, start another church. It's the, it's the biggest joke in the history of Christianity. It really is. And, and you say, what's the solution? I don't know. But I know this. I'm tired of, of people putting the blame on pastors. How dare he lead people astray? Oh, no, 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 no. He's not leading anyone astray. But guess what? The people in the pew, do they want to take on the responsibility that that comes with that? Because guess what would require that? When I mention one of these kings who's cursed and it possibly impacts the genealogy of Jesus, guess who should be able to give me the answer? You should be able to give me the answer. Don't look to me. When I mention anything here, guess who should be able to give me the answer? You. I shouldn't even have to give an answer. But they'll be like, and guess what people always say? Well, no one ever taught me. Not my problem. Nobody wants to think that all the way through, right? Everyone likes the power to do what? The pastor's wrong. Nobody wants the responsibility that comes with having said power. Because then you can't say, well, that pastor confused me. (laughs) No, 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 no. That was on you because you didn't bother to study. Nobody likes this. Nobody, I, I know that say, even saying these words are controversial, but the Protestant Reformation, whether we liked it or not, broke the dam down. And, and, and we always say, no, 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 Luther was giving the power to Scripture. No, whether he tried to or not, the power came to the person, to the individual. And, and I know what the individual can say. Well, what do you expect me to do? I have a life. I have a family. I have a job. I didn't, do, I didn't want to go into ministry. Well, not my problem. Because people will, people will always revert to that when, when someone puts the finger and says the responsibility is on you. Well, I wasn't called to ministry. But when the person who's called to ministry, who goes to school, stands up and says, this is what the Bible says, then those same people who don't do all the study will say, you're wrong. Like, the game is rigged. The game is so rigged, it's not even funny. Now, in this case, who gets the blame? The religious leaders. How that applies today, 
Some people will still yell and scream at the religious leaders, but I've gone, uh, maybe it's my own jaded experience, but I've reached the point I'm sick and tired of hearing that. Right? Because if the religious leader is to be blamed, well, then the religious leader should be the one then being listened to. Right? Now, because if you listen to the religious leader and the religious leader leads you astray, who gets the blame? The religious leader. But, if you, but now if you have the power and the authority, the, it's on you. I have seen, verse 14, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery, walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none doth return from the wickedness. They are all of them as unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood, make them drink the waters of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness gone forth into all the land. So with the kings, he's going to give them a, a true king, the true king. For the prophets, he's going to punish the prophets. All right? Now we have, we're out of time. Yeah, there's no way I can go. We're, we're out of time. <laughs> All right? Now he does, uh, you can see what he does starting in verse 16. What does he do here? He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. Now, that drives me absolutely crazy because what are the people then are supposed to do? <laughs> right? <laughs> They're supposed to listen to Jeremiah, but how do they know which prophet is the right prophet? Oh, that's maddening. It's completely maddening. It's completely maddening. It's completely maddening. But the whole, so God put the kings there. In a sense, he put the prophets there. But then the kings are bad. The prophets are bad. The people are going to be judged. And Jeremiah is the only one telling the truth and nobody agrees with him. The kings don't agree with him. The prophets don't agree with him. And the people don't agree with him. He's got nothing. The whole thing is kind of just insane to see play out. All right, but you, you, does everyone understand the, the difficulty there, right? I mean, we live in a day and age where the pastor really is nothing. And, and as much as churches can create structure, they can create anything. But that structure is only good no matter how much structure you have in place. The only thing structure can do is what? Make it harder for you to get rid of the pastor, Right? In other words, if the congregation doesn't make the decision and the elder board makes the decision, then it's harder for you to do anything to the pastor and all he needs to do is make sure he picks elders who are in agreement with him. So then he can have a little bit more power. Or if you have a denominational board, it may be harder. But guess what? The people in the pew can do what? Whatever. Just walk away. Just walk away. Just walk right out the door. Just walk out the door. They don't even have to tell you they're leaving. They may come tell you they're leaving, but there's nothing you can do. And they're leaving because they think, no matter how nice they want to put it, they're leaving because they think you are wrong. And do you think they have to demonstrate with study to prove that you're wrong? No. They don't even have to do the study. So, like the whole thing is just, to me, the whole thing is such a game and, and we, we won't admit the, the problems with it. But here, the kings are wrong and the prophets are wrong. And the people are wrong. And the priests. Everyone's wrong except Jeremiah. Now, that's a, sh- that's a scary thing because that can show that you could have the entire majority all being wrong and you could have one person with no congregation because no one, and they could be the right one. Now, sometimes it could be the one person who's wrong and the majority could be right. So numbers don't always prove right. Numbers don't always prove wrong, right? So just make sure the lack of doesn't prove someone is right. In other words, that just makes it even more complicated to know who is right. Makes it complicated. Very, especially in this day, even more so. But for us, we, we, say, we say the Bible's how we know, but everyone who says they're right says that they know because of the Bible. So that's really uh, complicated. All right, there you go. All right, that's some very important information there. 
we'll see. I don't know how we're going to proceed, but we will we'll figure it out on Sunday, okay? Uh, I, may, I may do more work on Jeremiah 23. I don't know. And maybe when we get here on Sunday, we'll just go straight to 24. Uh, so maybe we'll do that. I mean, I've already covered 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29 in the podcast, but we'll, we'll try to do some, some of it here. But we will have to start skipping at some point. So <laughs> I don't want to, okay? And when I say skip, I mean... We may read it and not say much and just move on, but we're, gonna, we're probably going to try to read every word if we can. We're going to try our best to uh, as much as possible. But, but uh, if, for, for your own sake, even if you haven't read everything else in Jeremiah, start in 20 and just read from 20 to the end. At least do that by the end of August, even if you haven't read the rest of it. Just at least read that part so that everyone has as much Jeremiah in their mind as possible. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, these are... Serious warnings about the, the time in which Jeremiah lived. There are parallels and, and issues that relate to us that make things even more complicated. But Lord, just uh, help us see ourselves in some of this, our own failures, our own, our, some of our own arrogance. And uh, Lord, may it all humble all of us to maybe realize we don't know as much as we think we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,